Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to John chapter 4. The book of John chapter number 4. What a beautiful day the Lord has given to us. John chapter number 4. Stand with us, please, if you can and will. We'll read verses 1 through 7. Then we're going to skip down and read a couple of other portions out of this chapter. You're familiar with this portion of Scripture. John 4, beginning in verse 1. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus uh, saith unto her, Give me to drink. Skip down, if you will. To verse number 28. 28 through 30, the Bible says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Skipping down now to verse number 39 through 41, the Bible says, And many of the Samaritans That city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Thank you for standing. Thank you so much. I'm interested in Christ's seeking of this Samaritan sinner. And of course, In this passage, you see uh, his deliberate uh, deliberate movements to Samaria, particularly to the town of Sychar, even more particularly to Jacob's well. And he goes at a time when the average would not have drawn water from the well, but he's waiting on someone. Uh, These movements, they are influenced by two or three different particulars. First of all, in the text, you'll see that the Pharisees influence his movement. A needy soul influences his movements. And then uh, a group of Samaritans influence his movements in this text. This is the sixth message since Christ has entered into his, um, into his ministry that we've been looking at. Of course, the life of Christ. Uh, those uh, previous messages since that particular Uh, area of his life. There were two messages concerning Christ's first five uh, disciples. There was a message we looked at regarding Christ turning water into wine, and then when he cleansed the temple. Our last message, we noted the personal interview with Christ of Nicodemus as he made his night visit, and now uh, Christ at Jacob's well with this Samaritan woman. John records a number of the personal interviews, the private interviews that individuals had with Christ. And the text before us is one of those. As a matter of fact, our last message was one of those where Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Remember, we spoke under three headings. Uh, There was Nicodemus, there was the night, and there was the great need. 
Regarding Nicodemus, we noted a man who was very religious, but he was lost. The night, the night in question, there's a lot of debate, a lot been written about why Nicodemus came by night. You'll have to make your mind up about it, but if you're right, you'll believe what I believe. Amen. Say amen right there. And then the need. We talked about how the, the need of Nicodemus represents man's greatest need. Here we look at this personal interview with a Samaritan woman here at Jacob's Well. There are a lot of recorded events, significant events, gathered around wells throughout Scripture. Let me just mention a few of them to you. Abraham sent his servant, Eleazar, in Genesis 24, sent him out to find his son Isaac a bride. He would find that bride at a well in Genesis 24. In Genesis chapter number 29, Jacob would find his future wife, Rachel, and he would find her at a well. In Genesis chapter number 16, God met Hagar at a well and told her to return back unto Sarah. In Genesis 21, God opened Hagar's eyes and showed her a well. And from that well, she was about thirst to death. And from that well, she would have her life and her son's life, Ishmael, uh, sustained. It would prove to their saving. In Genesis 21 and in Genesis chapter number 25, Abraham and Isaac had trouble over the Philistines regarding wells. The Philistines wanted to cut off the water supply. In Exodus chapter number 2, Moses would find his wife and also his home for the next 40 years of his life at a well. Those of you who are single here today, you're hanging out the wrong place. You need to go to the well somewhere and maybe you can find you a spouse. But here in this passage, we'll find the Samaritan lady. She literally and spiritually finds the Lord Jesus Christ and comes to know him. And she does that at this well. It's interesting to note this uh, second encounter that Christ, uh, that John records about Christ regarding uh, the book of, or in the book of uh, John, uh, this second encounter with Christ. There's Nicodemus, then following that, there is a series of events, including John the Baptist at the end of John chapter number three. Then we move into John chapter number four, and there is this interview with the Samaritan woman and Christ. Between John 3 and John 4 and these two encounters, there are many similarities and there are many contrasts. Let me give you some of the contrast. In John chapter number 3, the person that comes to Christ is a man. In John chapter number 4, it is a woman that Christ, um, that Christ encounters. In John chapter number 3, the man is a Jew. In John chapter number 4, the woman is a Samaritan. In John chapter number 3, the name of the man is given. Of course, it's Nicodemus. In John chapter number 4, the woman is unnamed. In John chapter number 3, the man, Nicodemus, had clout and standing in the community. We believe he was part of one of the three wealthiest families in Jerusalem in his day. In John chapter number 4, the woman was a commoner. Now, I borrowed that word from Jay Knight from last week. I love how he worked that word into his outline last week regarding Christ and his incarnation, how that he became a commoner. When you looked upon him, you saw a man. In John chapter number 3, the person, Nicodemus, he's morally clean, pure, respected for it probably. In John chapter number 4, the woman that has this encounter with Christ, morally she was impure. As a matter of fact, probably not many people regarded nor thought much of her. In John chapter number 3, the person is seeking Christ by night. In John chapter number 4, Christ is seeking this woman. In John chapter number 3, Nicodemus called Christ a teacher. 
In John chapter number 4, the woman, the Samaritan woman, called Christ a prophet. In John chapter number 3, there's a reference made to Moses, uh, the Old Testament figurehead that towers above the others of the Old Testament. In John chapter number 4, there's a reference made to the old patriarch Jacob. In John chapter number 3, the scene is at night. In John chapter number 4, this scene is in the middle of the day. In John 3, the encounter uh, took place in the privacy of a home. But in John chapter number 4, it's out for everybody to see should anybody have been there. It's out in the public, set uh, at an open place at the well. Let me mention some similarities between the two encounters, Nicodemus, his encounter with Christ, and the Samaritan lady. Both of them initially, they're ignorant as to Christ's person. Uh, you remember Nicodemus, he said, uh, he said, Master, he said, he said, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God. But he's much more than that, isn't he? He's God who is sent to teach and to die for our sins. And then the Samaritan woman, she said, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She said, the way you're talking to me, you must be a preacher. Uh, she knew there was something different about him, but that's about as far as she could go with uh, her limited understanding. Both of these individuals were dealt with just like that. They were individuals, and they were dealt with individually. I was just sharing with uh, one who's here this morning. I was just sharing this past week after the Wednesday evening service. Uh, sometimes it, it sort of charges our battery, and we hear somebody testify. Well, it was green carpet. And there were old uh, brass chandeliers in the sanctuary, and it was uh, over behind the piano, and it happened, and he preached on this, and and just detail it all. But sometimes I think that's very unfair because when you were saved and when I was saved, I guarantee the circumstances were different. It's the same gospel that saved us. It's the same Christ that saved us. But our experiences are different. I know men that were driving 18-wheeler trucks and God got so big in the truck they had to pull over. Uh, one of them on the side of I-40 between Memphis and Jackson, Tennessee. I know of, uh, uh, I know of one gentleman that was saved in a hayfield. Uh, many were saved in church, some were saved at home, but we're all saved. Our, our, differ, our circumstances were different. Both argued with the, with the word how. You remember Nicodemus, after Jesus told him, you must be born again. Uh, Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And then the Samaritan woman here in John chapter number 4 and verse number uh, nine. She asked, how is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Both were carnal in their initial response to Christ. As a matter of fact, again, Nicodemus, he, he asked, how can a man be born when he's old? You almost want to stop him and say, Nicodemus, you're, too, you're, you're a brilliant man. You're too smart for this. He's not talking about entering into your mother's womb again. He's talking about being born again. He's talking about the, the spiritual birth is what he's talking about. But he went carnal on him. And, and then the woman from Samaria as well, as a matter of fact, here in chapter number 4, verses 20 to 24, her response, her initial response is, verse number 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, uh, worship the Father. Um, uh, ye worship, ye know not what, and we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Then she goes on, or he goes on, and he talks to her. But her initial response uh, is uh, very carnal, very simple-minded. 
Both are told of their need in both chapters. That both are brought to the knowledge that they need Christ and his saving grace. Both were spoken to of everlasting life. As a matter of fact, at Nicodemus, Jesus gave to him the most well-known verse in all the word of God, that being John 3.16. That verse was spoken to Nicodemus. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you know that Jesus spoke to this, uh, this woman of Samaria about everlasting life as well? Verse number 14 of John 4. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him that shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Both narratives out of John 3 and John chapter number 4 contain the imperative word, the, the must word. He said to Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. The Bible says in John 4 that he must needs go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, he taught her a lesson about worshiping the Father. He said, they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We don't believe that Nicodemus was saved in the night visit, do we? We believe he was saved after John chapter number 3, sometime after John chapter number 3. But in a matter of moments, this Samaritan woman, she saved in the middle of the day. Nicodemus knew more about Scripture by far than this Samaritan woman, yet this Samaritan woman is saved in a matter of minutes. Both narratives end with a mention of the disciples coming on the scene. I want to speak to you under three headings. I'll uh, try not to be long. I'll really try. I'll really, really try not to be long. Uh, but I'm interested in these deliberate, deliberate movements of Christ. Uh, there are some things that just influence his going to Samaria, some factors that influence his going to Jacob's well at Sychar in uh, Samaria. He leaves Judea, and he comes down into Sychar in Samaria. So we mentioned to you the Pharisees will influence his movements. A needy soul will influence his movements. And uh, then there's a needy people that influence Christ's movements. Consider with me Christ's... Uh, uh, how that, um, uh, how that the Pharisees will influence his movements and his leaving of Judea. Uh, I do want to mention, if you will, look back with me at verse number 3, if you will. Notice where the Bible says he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. This word left is an interesting word. It comes from the word Athakin, Athakin. John Philip said about it, there's no exact parallel to the use of this word, in all of the New Testament. This word left, it, it comes from a word that means leaving something to itself or leaving someone to their self. It means leaving someone to their own fate or withdrawing and leaving someone to their own uh, devices. It's interesting how that when he leaves Judea, uh, the bulk of his ministry will be in Galilee now and Perea and Capernaum and beyond. Uh, he's not going to give much more to Judea. They have rejected him, and so now he walks away. He's going to leave them to their own devices. He's going to leave them to themselves. We said this in the Wednesday evening service. All God has to do is just remove his sand, withdraw from our lives, and destruction is sure to find us, right? Man left to himself will undo himself oft at times. Notice with me, if we will, verses 1, 2, and 3, how the Pharisees influence the movements of Christ. 
verses 1, 2, and 3 of our chapter. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard. Now that's, that's significant, how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Uh, he left Judea and departed again into uh, Galilee. You know, we've talked about this over the recent uh, couple of messages from the life of Christ. The Sadducees and the Pharisees made up the Sanhedrin court. In Christ's day, it was more of a Sadducean rule than it was a Pharisaic rule. They outnumbered the Pharisees. Both were steeped in their religious traditions, but it is the Pharisees that are specifically mentioned uh, here in the text. The Sanhedrin court was very religious and had political influence in the area. Some contend that the, that the Pharisees were the conservatives of the Sanhedrin, and they were. And they go a little farther and even try to say that they were orthodox in their theology. Try to bring it over to Christian, Christianity in our day. In other words, what some would contend is, well, the Pharisees, they were saved. They just had strong uh, convictions. But you listen to me for the next moment or two. The Pharisees were lost as a ball in high weeds, according to the word of Christ. And I'll say something about that and give that to you here in just a moment. Consider the young promising Pharisee by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. You remember who he was? He was a young man that was going somewhere. He was a young man with clout and influence. You remember when Stephen was to be stoned, those who picked up stones took their garments off and laid them at the feet of one Saul of Tarsus. He gave consent unto the death. He had that kind of influence. You remember the day that he was saved in Acts chapter number 9. He's headed to Damascus. He's got a one-track mind. He's going there to lay hands on uh, the followers of Christ. The Bible says that he had letters of authority, yet breathing threat threatenings and slaughter. That is, uh, he, wanted to, uh, he wanted to imprison some. He wanted to impale others. You think about Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he was a religious man, yet he was lost without Christ. He was passionate, but his soul was lost without God. He knew the scriptures, but he did not know Christ. He was a highly principled man, but he was a lost man. Lost without God and without hope in this world. Consider Christ's words about the Pharisees. This is what he said in John five forty six. He said, for had you believed Moses... He said, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Uh, for uh, he wrote of, men, uh, wrote of me. Many people believe that they're just another sect of Christianity, that the Pharisees were just that. But Jesus pointed out a very serious problem in their belief system. He said, if you had been reading and paying attention to what you were reading to, and what you were reading, if you'd been paying attention to what Moses wrote, you would know who I am. If you'd have been paying attention to to the word of God instead of what somebody says about it. You are men of the scriptures. If anybody ought to know who I am, you ought to know who I am. But yet he said, and, and again in John 5 and 46, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. As a matter of fact, after his resurrection, Cleopas and Mary's, he was walking with them on the Emmaus Road. The Bible says, and he beginning at Moses and all of the prophets expounded unto them the things concerning himself. He said, I am the seed of the woman in the book of Genesis. In the book of Exodus, I'm the Passover lamb. I am the atonement itself. In the book of Leviticus, I'm the brazen serpent. In the book of Numbers, I'm the true prophet. In the book of Deuteronomy, 
I'm the captain of our salvation and uh, in the book of Joshua, and I am the true judge in the book of Judges. He, he told them, I am the heavenly kinsman. I am your Boaz in the book of Ruth. I'm David's king. I'm Israel's king. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He took them through all of the Old Testament scriptures, but he started at Moses first. Remember the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? We believe, most believe that, that, that uh, he pinned down two of the Psalms. He started with all of Moses' writings, and he said, that's me on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Emmaus. But he told those Pharisees, he said, you are not a believer. Had you been a believer, you would have believed in the Messiah, for I am him. Moses wrote uh, of me. You see, the problem with the Pharisees is, like a lot of religious systems today, they were married to their religious system. They were zealous for their traditions and for their principles. They were a thorn in Christ's side, the whole of his ministry. They were not orthodox in their theology. They were unorthodox. They helped to kill and slaughter the Lamb of God himself. Perhaps they are some of who Christ had in mind whenever he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, And not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. He said, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And as we said some weeks ago, this is what they will say to him. Lord, we did this for you. We did that for you. Surely you're not going to cast. We did this for you. And he's going to turn around and say, you didn't do that for me. You did that for you. You did that for your bank account. You did that for your uh, position in the community and your influence. You did that for you. You didn't do it for me. I want to say something I haven't said in years, I suppose. I'm going to tell you, I'd rather hear a man that's got the call of God on him than a preacher in a pair of overalls. I'm talking about got the touch of God on him. He's got a heart to study the word and, and a man of prayer and a man of intent. I'd rather hear him preach and somebody get up and put a bunch of question marks over the word of God. There are many today that are married to their own religious ideologies. The Pharisees could prove to be very contentious people, couldn't they? Again, they're always a thorn in the side of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his public ministry. I went back and looked up those words that talked about contentious people that Solomon used in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs twenty-one nineteen says, It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. He said, You'd be better off by yourself in the wilderness than to live under the roof with a contentious woman. You can't live with her. No one can live with her. She can't stand to be around anyone, though she'll invite you into her home. A contentious woman. Brian just looked at Misty. Did you see that? Proverbs 26 and 21. The Bible says, as coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Did you know there are some people that are just contentious people in this walk of life? I mean, they're looking for a fight. Everything is sour. They can't brag on the Lord. They can't say congratulations to you. They can't ask you how your day's going. I'm telling you, they're just bitter on the inside, and it works its way out. Proverbs 27, 15, the Bible says, A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. That tale is very telling, isn't it? That rain, you have to take shelter from that. But if your home is filled with contention, you can't shelter yourself from that. 
Now I'm telling you, the Pharisees were that way. They took their attitude and looked down their long noses at everybody that surrounded them, particularly Christ and what is recorded of them in the New Testament. Jerry Vines used to tell about a woman and a man, and and, uh, the woman never missed anything down at the church house and said he continued to invite the man and witness to the man and said the man said he was saved. And he said, I'm convinced he was saved. He said, finally, I asked him, said, said, I think you are saved. I think you've given evidence as to what you, you tell me about your experience. Why don't you ever come to church with us? You know the Lord would be pleased. You can't separate a walk with Christ from a local church when in the New Testament. He said, why don't you come? He said, preacher, to be quite honest with you, he said, the only time that there's any contentment in my life is when my wife is down there at that church. Now, I'm going to tell you what a sad testimony that somebody who names the name of Christ would walk around like the fellow that woke up. His kids put the Limburger cheese on his handlebar mustache. He woke up and he said, something stinks in this room and got up and stepped out into the hall and he took a deep breath and he said, my word, something stinks here. Stepped into the kitchen, took a deep breath, said the same thing. He thought, I've got to get a breath of fresh air. So he walked out the front door, took a deep breath, and he said, my goodness, the whole world stinks. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's about that way with pharisaical people, is it not? Did you know, according to Romans chapter number 2, the contention, the contentious heart, the, the man of contention, the woman of contention is headed for the judgment of God? Now, that's found specifically in Romans chapter number 2. They'll continue to be a contentious lot regarding Christ. Look at it again. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Look at verse 3. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. They were a jealous lot. They were an envious group of people. They wanted no one to have a following but themselves. They were immoral. They were not moral people. They're the ones that helped to put Christ on the cross of Calvary. They were religious, all right. But they were lost as a ball in high weeds and rotten to the core. Not only do the Pharisees influence the movements of Christ, but the needy soul influences the movements of Christ as he makes his way to Samaria. Look at verses 4 through 7. The Bible says, And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And then the Bible says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. I think about right now the key verse to the book of Luke. Luke 19, verse number 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here he is seeking a Samaritan sinner. He travels to Samaria. Verse number 4 says, and he must needs go through Samaria. His desire is to go through, to go to, and to go through Samaria. Did you know from Judea to Galilee, that's the most direct route, but Jews didn't take that route. They'd cross the Jordan River. They'd travel through Persia in order to, in order to avoid Samaritan. They did not even want to want their sandals touching the soil of Samaria. It was quite unusual to see a Jew in Samaria, and yet here he is, the Son of God himself. He is a Jew. He's the one who came unto his own, and his own received him not. And I'm telling you, here he is. He's going to Samaria. He travels further into Samaria to Sychar. Verse number 5 says, 
Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Did you know Joseph's grave is located there? As a matter of fact, the word Sychar, the town's name itself, it means town of the sepulcher. You remember what Joseph gave orders regarding his body and his bones? You remember he, he said to his, uh, he said to his, uh, said to his sons and said to his loved ones, he said, I've never forgotten who I am. I've never forgotten my goodly heritage. I've never forgotten the promises of God to my people and to my family. And there's going to come a day according to God's word. He's going to set all of you free from Egyptian bondage. He said, now don't you bury my box of bones here in Egypt. Don't you put me beneath the Egyptian soil. You put my, you put my bones in a coffin. And when you get out of here, you take me with you. And you bury me out yonder some other place. But you get me out of here. And won't it be something one of these days when God calls that box of bones forward and gives him a new body? Like in that fashion under Christ's glorious body. And I'm telling you, the, the, the grave of Joseph is there where Jesus is. But not only that, Jacob's well is there. In 1697, they measured the depth of Jacob's well. It was 105 feet at the time. Some of the places, Holly and Selah Beth, Amanda and me, and if you've been to the Holy Land, some of the places that they claim are authentic places are, are questionable. They really are. But you know that everybody agrees at where, where Jacob's well, they, they claim this to be Jacob's well in Samaria. Everybody pretty well gives assent. They feel like that is where it is. When we were over in the Holy Land, the, the tour guide took us off the itinerary and took us into Samaria. I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but it's a dirty city. And you could tell we were in a tour bus. They didn't want us there. We were stared at on the way in. We were stared at on the way out. Little Orthodox Greek priest is who oversees the Jacob's well. Uh, Cody Moore got to, let the, got to let the bucket down into the well. I didn't think he'd ever get down to where the water was, but eventually he did. And he pulled up some water. We got to bring little vessels. We got to buy and bring little vessels home. You know, they hate the little Greek Orthodox priest over there. The gate, when you're going into the gate, uh, it's got bullet indentions on the thick gate that is outside where uh, this Greek Orthodox priest oversees it. He's vowed he's not leaving there until, uh, until God calls him out of this walk of life. Little bitty man. But I tell you, he was zealous for Christ and uh, wanted to guard that, uh, that well as best he could. Jesus also travels to see a woman of Samaria. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says that he sits on the well there. Verse number 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Christ's humanity is brought into focus in verse 6. He who neither slumbers nor sleeps, robed himself in flesh, and knew what it was for that body of flesh to be fatigued. And he sits down to get a moment's rest, uh, to rest his body just a little bit. He's weary from his, from his traveling. Also in verse number 6, the timing for this event is brought into focus. The Bible says it was about the sixth hour. That means it was high noon. It's 12 o'clock. It's the middle of the day. He speaks to this Samaritan woman, beginning in verse number 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Do you remember where you were when the Lord first spoke to you? Uh, she never forgot this day. You'll never convince me she ever got over uh, what he first said to her because he's going to lead her into the way everlasting. And until the day she died, she was in the way. Thank God for that. But, um, uh, but uh, Jesus is, is breaking oral tradition 
in many ways. That's why the Pharisees never did receive him. He just wouldn't embrace their, uh, their traditions that they held so uh, in such esteem. You see, he wasn't supposed to be in Samaria, being a Jew. That's strike one. He wasn't supposed to be talking to a Samaritan. That is strike two. He surely wasn't supposed to be talking to a Samaritan woman. That is strike three. Let me give you some phrases. It's been translated and passed down through the years. Religious leaders. The one phrase was, he who eats the bread of a Samaritan is as he who eats swine's flesh. Another one said, no Samaritan shall ever be made a proselyte. And yet another, they have no share in the resurrection of the dead. It's not that Jesus broke from their traditions. He never did embrace their traditions. Coming out of the gate, he never embraced their traditions. He loved souls. He loved people. And he was trying to reach them. He embraces the Jew. He embraces the Gentile. He embraces the Samaritan alike. He spoke to her. Later, he's going to speak to a whole host of Samaritans as they come out to meet him. They ask him to stay. He'll spend two days with them. He doesn't care. He has no batting average to keep up. He's the Lord of glory after all. Why would he try to be worried about impressing men? Not only does he speak to this Samaritan woman and some Samaritan men at the end of the chapter, but he spoke of Samaritans in the presence of Jews. You remember his parable of the good Samaritan? Don't you know that hair-lipped half of that religious crowd that day when he said the priest is trying to keep up his batting average? And uh, the other one, he walked his way, the Levite. Why, he couldn't have been seen over there uh, helping that old boy. But here comes somebody that had no batting average. He had been despised and rejected all his life. He doesn't mind getting down in the ditch with that old boy's aunt that's been robbed and wounded and left half dead. Do you know that's the gospel? Did you know Jesus wasn't, he wasn't worried about what this world cared about him when he got in the ditch and rescued you and brought you to his inn and set you up real good in the local church and begin to bless you as you would follow him and walk with him. And the fact that Jesus, the Bible says, must needs go through Samaria, brought him to the place where this woman lived. I love that old song, don't you? Squire used to sing, he came to me. Let me give you the first verse and chorus of it, and that's all I'll give you of it. But he came to me. God had his hand on that old boy. And I'm telling you, he used to teach out in one of the Bible colleges on prayer. He was a man of prayer. A man consecrated to God. The squire used to sing these words. The gulf that separated me from Christ my Lord. It was so vast the crossing I could never ford. For where I was to his domain it seemed so far. I cried, dear Lord, I cannot come to where you are. And then sweetly and gently he'd sing like an angel. That chorus, he came to me. Oh, he came to me. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I could not come to where he was, he came to me. Ray Shelton, that's what he did for this old boy. It's been over 30 years ago now, and I tell you, he gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. The walk with him is richer and richer and filled with his grace and mercy every day of the journey. This woman Jesus speaks with at the well, she is undesirable in her day. Even among the Samaritans, look at how she's lived. Nobody cared for her. She had been married some five times and was shacked up with the old boy she's living with then. Jesus confronts her about that particular thing in the narrative. She's unsaved. And uh, you'd have, maybe you'd have gone after the best 
the, morally the best in the community. That's not who he's looking for this morning. He's hunting a sinner. That's who, he's hunting a sinner man and a sinner woman. That's who he's looking for today. Many of you fell in love with Brother Curtis and Miss Debbie Gibson. Some of us have known them for years. Brother Curtis swallowed a piece of the sunshine somewhere along the journey. He's just so filled with the joy of the Lord. Sat right there with Miss Debbie. Can't hear it thunder anymore. Um, he'd sit right there and I'd watch him at times during the song service of the Bible conference. I'm telling you, he looked like he swallowed the sun. And uh, I'd heard about him when he was a missionary in France. I'd heard about him through the years on different occasions. And when I finally met him, it was at Brother Terry Oswalt's. We'd go out at Christmas and spend a week with my mother-in-law back when she lived at Kennedy, Alabama. And we'd go to church that Sunday with Brother Terry. And I'd hunt a day or two with Brother Terry. They're south of Fayette, Alabama. And we'd have a big time. Brother Terry's like myself. He likes breakfast. You can tell I like a lot more than breakfast. But Brother Curtis was up. He had come back to the States. He was in Louisiana. And he was up to do some hunting and spend time. He and Brother Terry, the best of friends. Brother Terry and I, we'd talk. and We'd, be, we'd get on the subject and just as he was here around our church here in the Bible conference. He'd get tickled. And he'd spit biscuit and everything on us. And he'd, he'd say, do you know what? Do you know what? Let me tell you. And, and he'd give us a bigger bear story. And I'm t- just rejoicing how God had worked in his life and through his life. You know, he's a church planner. When he was in France, he was a church planner. You know, since he's been back in the States, he is a church planner. I believe he's 75 now. Just got through with a battle with cancer. Resigned to work down in Pensacola. He's considering there in South Mississippi where his home is trying to plant another church before God calls. He hadn't got any energy. But he told me back years ago when he first come back to Louisiana, he pastored or planted three or four churches. He said, when I move into a trailer park, I'm asking the Lord to move me right next door to the biggest, the most foul mouth, the biggest drunk in the trailer park. And he said, then I'm asking God to give me wisdom to win him to Christ. And he said, if I can win that old boy, he said, I've seen it happen in France. And I've seen it happen in South Louisiana. He said, if I can win that old boy, he said, it's almost like Lazarus being raised from the dead all over. Now, I'm telling you, this old gal, she's going to get saved. And after she gets saved, there's a bunch of men fixing to come. And they're going to get saved. And they're going to invite him back home with them. There's a bunch of others going to get saved. Perhaps part of our problem is we've just forgotten what it was like when the Lord revealed to us that we were lost before we were saved. I do think upon it times when I realized, when I began to realize that God owed me his own judgment and wrath. I remember that. I can remember times where I'd lay awake in bed at night and think if I die, it's me that has the blood vessel burst, burst in the night. Hell will be my home. I think about that. Often I think about that. I was talking with our friend. You've yet to meet him. Some of you have met him, but uh, Brother Stacy Lane, I was talking with Brother Stacy about, he shared with me, some of us out at Taylor, Taylorsville camp meeting last year, we got to meet Brother Donnie Burns. Brother Donnie just got out of the hospital after being there for about a month. Brother Donnie was the brother that sat up in front of us He's a one-man show. I'm telling you, one-man camp meeting. He'd come in, somebody'd bring him in, and he'd say, let's go to church, people. 
Let's go to church. Y'all help him out. He's preaching. One of the preachers quoted Charles Spurgeon. He said, don't, he said, Jeremy, don't quote him. They'll think you're a Calvinist. Somebody else quoted Warren Wiersman. He said, don't quote him. They'll think, uh, no, he said, don't quote him. He don't always stay with the King James. He just, Donnie Burns was in prison for life for armed robbery and drug charges in the state of Tennessee. The Supreme Court passed a law that, uh, entrapment law, Someone who was entrapped, well, they wound up having their prison sentences either reduced or they were set free. It depended on what the charge was, the specifics of the charge. He thought he was in there for the rest of his life. Donnie Burns got saved in prison. He got called to preach in prison. And whenever, whenever he got out of prison, after about a year, he became the pastor of John's Memorial Baptist Church in East Tennessee. Brother Stacy. If you ever go to talk about trailer park kids, don't do it in front of him. He's about 6'3", and I'm telling you, much of a man. That's where he was. That's where he grew up. He said that, uh, he said back in those days, he said he didn't know Johnny, didn't know know Donnie Burns from anybody. But said his neighbor, the kid, they called him Weasel. Said Weasel invited him to go to church one Sunday night. Said, Stacy, you want to go to church with us tonight? And he said, I believe I will. Said he went to church, never seen anything like it in his life. Said he went back, maybe it's on Wednesday night, next Sunday morning, he was saved by the grace of God on the next Sunday night. Said he never had heard anybody call one another brothers and sisters. He didn't know what that preacher was up to when he got up in front of the church. I mean, it's just an old guy, an ex-con. God had saved him, called him to preach. He said back in those days, there were multitudes that were saved. He said in a matter of just a few minutes, one Sunday night, I forget the count of, those that were saved by the grace of God. He said it was just a God thing. He said they were in service. Service just got, said they were just a multitude of people that were saved. And he don't know how many were saved over about a two or three year period. Weasel's daddy was Ed Hall. He said that Ed Hall said there was miracle after miracle in that move of God. But said Ed had done planned his suicide. He had taken out a million dollar life insurance policy. He started living. He was a drunk. And was in trouble and womanizer and all that sort of stuff. And he's miserable and sick of his life. He said he didn't plan to suicide. He was waiting on the rain. And he was going to go down the highway and where, whatever he was going to hit. But he took out a life insurance policy. He said one night, said while he was in the bed, said Ed, said, said God, said God been dealing with him. Said God brought great conviction in his life. Said he rolled out of the bed onto the floor and was saved by the grace of God while he called upon Christ. Said he had so much peace in his life, he fell asleep right there in the floor after he got saved. Said he woke up about three hours later and it was raining outside. And old Brother Stacy said that he said Ed Hall said he shouted and he gave and he worked and he attended and he worshiped. For the next 35 years, he lived and said, God just blessed him. He's so happy to be alive, so happy to be saved by the grace of God. What a blessing that is. Let's read these last verses, and I'll be, I'll be brief, as long as you don't say amen to that. Look at 28 to 30. And we may come back to this text again next week, because there's a lot here we're not dealing with. Not only does this needy soul influence the movement of Christ, but these needy people influence as well. 28 to 30, the Bible says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city and came unto him. 
Look with me at verses 39 to 41. The Bible says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Christ was seeking a Samaritan sinner, but now listen to me. He also was seeking a whole bunch of other folk. There's a bunch of folk got saved in this state. It's not just the Samaritan woman at the well, but a whole bunch of people got saved by the grace of God. Let my mind think about this through the week. Christ reached her. He reached others through her. Um, There was a time, I've shared this a time or two with you over the years we have been together. When I was at Thrasher, and what negative I say, I don't want that to be a reflection on the majority because it wasn't. But Brother Dale Ross, there was a church van that rarely got used, and Brother Dale, a preacher in the church, one Sunday after we dismissed, he said, Brother Kevin, I want to uh, mention something to you. He said, over at Rienzi, he said, there's a, a trailer park that's scattered in those hills. There's a water hole, if you know anything about Rienzi and chop shops, there's a bunch of old cars, frames, motors, you name it, in a deep hole over at Rienzi. It's been in the news on and off through the years. On the other side of that, in the hills, there's a trailer park. And back then, I don't know about now, but back then there was a lot of drug use, a lot of it. And there were several children. And Brother Dale, he said, I know some of those kids. They're the same age as my kids, and now they're having kids, and there are other kids there. He said, what do you think about me taking the church van? He said, I'll take somebody with me. Well, what do you think about me taking the church van over? I said, I want to start right there and see if I can't visit on Saturday mornings and ask those parents to let me pick the children up, bring them to church on Sunday. I said, sounds like a good idea. We had a charge account for gas there at Miss Billy, Miss, Mr. Billy and Miss Ruby Barron's store there in the community across the street from the school. I said, Brother Dale, you can get your gas there. 16 passengers. He'd come in some Sunday mornings. They'd be 22, 24. You'd think they'd never going to get through getting off the bus. On the front end, it was like a bunch of wild Mohicans. I thought they were going to take over. But our people were patient and kept working with them. Some of the good folk didn't think they ought to be there. Um, some of their clothes would be dirty. Their hair wouldn't be combed, you can imagine. And some of the Higher-ups just didn't think they ought to be there. I told one man he was the bell cow. They wasn't the only run-in he and I had. I said, if they're not welcome, I'm not either. My wife grew up in a situation like that. So that is personally offensive to me. I said to him, I I looked him right in the eye. I said, "If, if they're not welcome, I'm not either. And I meant it. I still mean it. They kept coming. Probably the oldest little boy's name was Jason. He'd steal cigarettes from his mom and some of the other folk there. And he had his own cigarette lighter and took us a couple of Sundays, figured out who it was that was lighting cigarettes in the bathroom. We figured him out. 
some of our little boys that had some raising, Jason would push them down. He'd trip them, pick fights. Them boys didn't know what today. wasn't tough as he was, but he knew it. He got so bad, I got Brother Dale, got one of the deacons. We went into the study, and I said, Jason, I said, I love you. It's hard for me to tell you what I'm fixing to tell you. I said, son, I love you. And I pointed at Brother Dale, and I said, this man loves you. He's the reason you're here. But I said, if you don't quit pushing our little boys down, and if you don't quit bringing cigarettes and lighting them in our church and setting them down on the bathroom sink, son, Brother Dale's not going to pick you up again. I said, you got about one or two more chances. You understand me? He kind of nodded his head. I said, Jason, I love you. Brother Dale loves you. We've tried to help you. You don't have to fight all your life, son. Oh, Jason scaled it back a bit. It's probably about two months later he was the first one saved out of that bunch that Dale Ross picked up on the church van. Over about two or three months, most of the others were saved by the grace of God. I can see it like it happened last Sunday. A lot of times in the foyer, there were three doors. I'd always be at the middle door. Some people would go that way and some go out the side door. And I'd say, good morning. Uh, good to have you this morning, ma'am. Something along that line. They'd be, sometimes it wasn't but about two or three of them. Sometimes it was a line of about seven or eight of them. Whatever I said, they didn't know what to say, but whatever I said. Now, they'd say it. They'd say, good morning, ma'am. Good to see you today. Come back next service. It's just like a little parrot, one right after the other. I loved them. I loved them. There was one, there were three sisters. There was a, an older girl, and then she had a set of twin sisters. I got a call one night. It was maybe 8 to 9 o'clock at night. Brother Dale had got word that she had, one of the little twins had, had got a deep cut, and her mother had taken her down to the emergency room at Boonville, so I went down there. And... And when I walked through the emergency room door there at Boonville, the the two sisters that were in the emergency room, they come running to me and hug me, one on one leg and one on the other. And I said, tell me what happened. Tell me where your sister's at. And they told me. They looked to a bunch of us like we were daddies and mamas. We bought their workbooks for school. We'd have parents that would sponsor them, buy them their blue jeans, buy them their shirts, whatever they needed for school. Taught them. It does matter how you present yourself. Try. They begin to take, most of them did, pride in trying to do better with themselves for the cause of Christ even. I will never forget walking back. A lady let me in the, to the room back there where the other one was. And there she was laid up in the emergency room bed and had the Bible we'd given her at church tucked under her arm. And I said, how are you doing? And she said, Brother Kevin, I'm doing all right. You pray for me. Just as big as she could be. I was at a hurricane pastor and was preaching revival in Iuka. And instead of running over and catching 25, going over to Fulton, catching 25, I thought, you know, it would be good if I could run up on one of those kids. After, soon after I left, they quit running the bus. And I didn't pray about it. I just thought it would be so good if I could just run up on one of them in Ryan's. So I left, went up 45, cut through Ryan's. If you've been through the town, when you come to the town, uh, when you come to the dead of town, which is not much of it, you either go right or left. You go left, and you can go through Ryan's and back through. And uh, 
When you cross the railroad tracks, if you've been through Rienzi, you know how it works. You take two or three sharp curves before you plane out and can gain any traction. I come around that last curve, and there the three girls were. I cried like a baby. I guess they were used to traffic. They just walked the streets of Rienzi, the little town of Rienzi, all them little boys and little girls. They just did like they wanted to. I pulled the car over, had a little Buick. Uh, at the time that I was driving, I pulled it over, turned the flashers on, got out and eased my doors shut. I said, hey, do I know y'all? Three little girls turned around ran toward me. I don't know that they cried, but I cried like I couldn't preach that night hardly for crying. I wonder what it's going to be one of these days when we get on the other side. Those that we've got to worship with on this side were reunited and Travel and death won't impede our fellowship anymore. I wonder what it's going to be like. I don't know that it's going to be like what we sing and say a lot. But should it be possible, I sure would like to move in. That's 20 years ago. That was in 2003. I thought careful about when I preached. That That was 20 years ago almost. The oldest girl would be in her 30s. Christ reached one. The one reached and brought a multitude. And many were saved by the grace of God. I'm where we were in the open assembly this morning with Johnny Wilder. I'm right in with him. I'm right in on top of what he was talking about. Others need to see Christ in us and we need to be sharing Christ with others. Jesus was in a place that he wasn't supposed to be. He is with a woman he wasn't supposed to be with, sitting and conversing with her. Then he is in the middle of a whole bunch of people he was forbidden as a Jew to be among. But he broke tradition because every one of them had a soul. And he went to them. May we be of the same mindset in the day in which we live. Would you bow with us for prayer?